Hey, what's going on, everybody? You are listening to The Sane Show, the show about nothing and everything. I'm your host, Cliff, and today I have two special guests joining us. I have Dr. Lance Hume, professor of music theory at North Carolina Central University, and I have Professor Clara O'Brien, professor of vocal performance at the University of of North Carolina at Greensboro, my alma mater, <laughs> and both are the founders of A La Carte. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Thanks, Cliff. Great to I'm, be here. Great to be here. <laughs> I'm super excited to have you guys on the show. I'm really excited to have this conversation as well. Really quick, before I introduce the topics, as I always do, I want to take and quickly shout out followers on social media and all of our listeners. And if you're listening and you don't already follow us, be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Sane underscore show. That's Sane, S-A-N-E underscore show. And then you can find us on Facebook, The Sane Show. Again, on Facebook, that is The Sane Show. So today we're going to have a conversation about fusion of music. We're also going to have a conversation about supporting the arts. And then following that, we're going to have an interview with both of you so that we can learn more about you guys, the things that you do, and then all the fun and exciting things that go along with that. So let's go ahead and hop right into it with fusion of music. So the the conversation I had with you guys, the first go around, really had my mind going. And you know, for me, to, when we talk about fusion of music across genres, it it never gets old for me. Most that know me know that smooth jazz, fusion jazz are my favorite genres. When I think about what you guys are doing uh, with Alucard, I think uh, that really excited me because of, again, we're talking about fusion of music. And when I think about the fusion of music, it goes across genres, not only genres, but cultures and across uh, geographic regions as well. And that's what makes it so exciting because especially to do that, you have to have a great appreciation for various genres of music to even do something like that. So you know, I just wanted to hand it over to you guys and get your thoughts on when we talk about, you know, fusion of music and, you know, why is it so unique and just everything that goes with, with that when we talk about the fusion of music across genres and cultures and uh, geographical regions. Well, I would start by asserting that majority of musicians are not bound to thinking categories. We don't tend to see ourselves in a certain sort of rigid category of what we do. Instead, we're always exploring. Being an artist is exploring. Especially for me as a composer, all art is a matter of reaching out and seeing what's out there to assimilate into the language I write. As a performer, the same thing. It's looking for what is out there that is in somehow going to inform me, make me a larger musician. Music not being necessarily something that's um, that's encapsulated in within the parameters, let's say, of, of a genre, style, epic, or culture. It, it, it naturally seeps over. It's, it's just part of the nature of being a musician. You're constantly curious. You're constantly interested in what's happening beyond that. And especially when it comes to what we're doing, which is presenting music to a public that may not know these various types of music. It's a matter of bringing that, uh, this, this new fresh thing or this new idea to them to delight them with uh, expanding their worldview when it comes to music, their, their oral palate, to, to, to bring it out more, to, to, to complete, completely absorb what this, this connected world gives us. 
which is and it's it's a bounty and it's of course music is what we do best you know arts are what we do we do the best so they're the best of us let's put it that way you know they're the, what we export let's say that with the with the least damage to others as it were <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I just want to be clear on what kind of fusion we're we're actually talking about. There's fusion where styles actually mix and together and make a, a separate style. Like you know, jazz fusion is is a fusion of, of of various pop and jazz. And what we do is mostly juxtaposition of various styles and genres because it, it, that goes to the heart of what a la carte is about and how it came about. Is that we we love so many types of music and we were thinking you know how can we find a venue for them you know this won't fit on a classical recital or a typical you know classical music concert so how do we do this we stopped trying to fit them together at a certain point and just said you know we're just gonna do it all together yeah like a like a collage of uh, styles yeah loving the jumble as it were <laughs> loving the messiness of it that being one of the exciting things about it it's messy it's like life right so we Go ahead. And, you know, we've really enjoyed bringing this um, variety of cultures, not only for our own sake, but and we have enjoyed that, too. But watching people's eyes, you know, light up when you bring a, a you know, a Chinese Gusheng player or something, you know, and never heard that before. And just it just opens worlds for them as well. And um, so it almost feels like a mission that sometimes, you know, for us. <laughs> Ambassadors of music, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm actually thinking about that. This just came to mind. I was listening to a song that was done in collaboration between uh, Skip Marley, who is Bob Marley's uh, right. grandson, and then her, who recently became one of the prominent R&B artists of you know my generation. And I'm listening to the song, and I remember I texted one of my one of my best friends who is really big into reggae. And I, I was talking to him about how they took the R&B sound and the reggae sound and really made something cool. And, I, and I, especially you talk about being like ambassadors, right? You know, I'm listening to the song and I said, you know, for people that may not really be into reggae, but they hear that song that has that's an R&B song or it could be a reggae song to some people that has that fusion sound. It, it could be a way for people to get into reggae that may not be as into reggae. So. You know, when we when we talk about fusion of music, like I think that's the when you talk about being an ambassador, I think that's what it does, right? You're like you, you know, you're introducing people to something that they might not have really been exposed to, because that is exactly what the the Rippingtons have done to me, because I because I've listened to them and now through hearing their various songs on their various different projects and which have been influenced by different cultures outside of the U.S. It has allowed, it has helped me to go and explore other genres that I may not have been exposed to, but because I listen to someone who has taken it and done something awesome with it, and it's, I put upon myself, well, let me go check this out, or let me go hear this, like, because I, you know, like, I've heard that sound before, like, I love Japanese music like the mm -hmm. stuff that you would hear it makes me think about a dojo or being mm -hmm. being you know you're meditating like that kind of stuff so <laughs> well you know actually it even works on the creative process that way for for me as a composer and for Clara as, as a performer uh, and you just imagine Japanese music my exploration of hearing Japanese music informed me enormously in my compositional life 
that was a vital part to understand. Not necessarily that I was going to incorporate Japanese principles, but that the principle that what was going on in my creativity was resonating and clarified through uh, the, my my encounter with Japanese music. It came very clear to me the idea of centering around an important sound rather than directly approaching it, always alluding to it rather than going directly to it. And the other one that I was thinking about is essentially that video of a piece I wrote for Clara and uh, trumpeter Chris Gecker, who many people might know is one of the world-class trumpeters. In this piece, it is, if you listen to this piece, you're hearing Harmon trumpet, you're hearing sounds that are not really associated necessarily with my classical composition, but with my acquaintance as a jazz pianist with jazz, and somewhere in the middle there. It's creating there a you know a real fusion, and then think Clara's performance also. You hear the way she's singing; it is much more, uh, it's less operatic, and less uh, it, it's, it moves in another direction. And that fusion creates then a new, really a new space. Hopefully, uh, that's really one of the fun things about singing modern music too is that there really isn't a precedent, uh, especially if you're premiering a piece. You know, you've got carte blanche to do whatever you want, pretty much, and and to interpret it the way you want. So, you know, you're really setting the standard for, for others to follow. And that, that's exciting in itself. But with back to a la carte, you know, sometimes we, it, it's not so much always that we say, okay, we, we love jazz, we're going to get a jazz group on there. But sometimes it works backwards. Like, for example, at my school, there's a, a doctoral student from Libya who plays the oud. And I had never heard this instrument. And we found out about this. And so we contacted him. We said, you know, you want to be on our show. What, what do you have? You know, show us what you do with, with your oot. So he played us some traditional pieces and, and sang for us a little bit. And we were just blown away. And then um, he found a song um, for me to sing, too. And he <laughs> he coached me on my, uh, my pronunciation and, and everything. So um, in that case, it was a kind of fusion because I, I didn't, don't really have the right kind of native pop voice for that. But um, but that was really, really fun and, and really opened some doors uh, for us. So That reminds yeah. me, he's going to be on our March 15th concert oh, this awesome. year. And uh, and this is a very interesting piece because it's a piece where he's going to do Taskeen, which is appropriate at, at Ramadan. That's a piece that's played at Ramadan during the meditation sessions before you go into the mosque and then afterwards, afterwards for Ramadan. But in addition, we're doing a piece by a student of mine, a former student. He's Israeli. He lives in Israel right now. He's a jazz pianist over there. He's having a nice career. We asked him to uh, to send us what he had. He had this 11th century Sephardic Lament of Loss of Jerusalem by a Sephardic Jew, and that he had written in a jazz form, and then he incorporated Ut into that. So we have these, this cross-current going on then, bringing together not only the musics of somebody from Libya, some, and then the traditions of Israel, then but also jazz, and it's a classically orchestrated piece, and, and all that coming together to create something that I don't think exists in any other space like that. All kind of mushed together wonderfully i said like like the mess of life you know we're, we're all a mix and uh, you know and and that is the healthiness of it that's uh, so i guess in that case we do have both kinds of fusion going on in this particular <laughs> concert yeah this particular concert we're doing one uh the one coming up on december 5th we will be doing one piece from uh it's it's a, a traditional hanukkah piece uh but the, otherwise we're doing christmas music from all over the place, including Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer. So we're really kind of going in, in all sorts of different directions in this one. Uh, and, and, and again, it, it, we didn't necessarily set out to 
you know, it wasn't a, like a political agenda. That's that's not really what's going on, especially for I don't think it's going on with many musicians in general. The kind of a political agenda or sort of an overt gender, uh, uh, agenda. It's it's internal. It's it's what naturally occurs as a creative and expressive individual. You're always searching out for more. You're always looking for the next thing that's going to make your artistic life more enriched and more more meaningful and more present. You know, and I, I've been really impressed with how open the audiences are. I thought they might balk at, you know, some of the more popular things. I guess it's just my my mindset as a classical musician. But, for example, one of our recent concerts, we did a really cerebral piece by George Crumb, um, which is also, a living composer. So, yeah, also a bit of theatrics going on in this piece. But, I mean, it's pretty dry. And I was very concerned that they were just going to stand up and walk out. You know, like, what is this stuff? I don't get this. But they were absolutely spellbound. And, um, you know, I, I just had such respect um, for them coming with an open mind and absorbing this type of music and, and um, maybe not understanding it even, but being completely open to it. And then the flip side, a couple of concerts back, we did Songs to Aging Children Come by Joni, uh, Joy, Joni Mitchell. With Oba d'Amore, which is a Baroque oboe, a special, pretty, something like, a, like a, a tenor oboe. And again, the audience, uh, it was with guitar and piano and two voices. And um, the audience, who might have been more oriented towards a classical concert, were very open to that and really enjoyed that performance. Because, again, it's it's less to do with the genre and, or the sort of an overt fusion. It's, for, it's the whole idea of exploration. What's next? I can't wait for what's next. I also think we undersell our audiences sometimes. Oh, yes. Even in classical, there's a festival here in Greensboro, the Eastern Music Festival that comes every summer. And they stick to pretty traditional programming. But what interests me is how much of the audience is young people and also the pieces they react to. And so it's crazier one, the Shostakovich and the, the really big Mahler pieces and, and anything that's sort of quasi-modern, those are the ones that they really, really love. And I just wish we could trust our audiences more yeah, and, and so really give them, a, a, you know, a palette of what's out there, because I think the response would be surprising. All right, we're back. We're going to now have a conversation about supporting the arts. This is something that is very important to me. It is also a very important topic because we oftentimes have discussions about the arts here in the States. And you know, one of the things I've learned from my conversation with you guys is that we don't ever really, or at least I don't ever really think about how we uh, compare to other countries uh, when it comes to you know, supporting the arts and I was just having a conversation with actually my previous guests about just the importance of the arts and those skills that creatives have, you know, whether it be an entertainment, whether it be a visual artist or media, whatever you have it. But 
make it, helping me realize how those skills uh, transfer outside of the business. But again, just speaking to the greater importance of the arts in general, um, and that it is important that we uh, support it because, again, oftentimes the, the arts are overlooked as far as the value that they bring to the to the individuals that are in the arts and again how those skills are very much applicable outside of the arts. so you know want to have a conversation with you guys as far as the the importance of supporting the arts again especially when you know you were talking about how you know france is very supportive of the arts within their own country so if you could help me enlighten the listeners as far as the importance of the arts and supporting it well, the first thing I, I would say, I think we have to be careful to understand the relationship between money and the arts. There isn't a one-to-one relationship. Now, this is sort of sometimes overseen because so much of our arts comes through the media now that it's, it becomes that the metric of what makes art good is whether it sells or not. And that, that is sometimes you know a good metaphor, sometimes not. I mean, for example, Igor Stravinsky made virtually no money on many of his major works in terms of real money, enough to make buy, but no, you know, no big megabucks. On the other hand, Maurice Ravel, his piece Bolero, which is really basically just an arrangement, it made him a rich man. He was already rich, but it made him richer. I mean, there's, you know, there is no direct connection. And then we also have to realize that popular music or entertainment music has, is part of the capitalist model. It, it's part of, of the world and where you buy this music. And, not, and, the, and in general, the arts historically aren't bought that way. They aren't a consumer product. It's not thought that way. It doesn't mean that it's good or bad they're not a consumer product. It just means it is. So when we start you know, thinking about this, do we support the arts, we have to decide, are we talking about supporting the arts that need support or is that that they need support some sort of denigration of their quality because people don't go out and buy them? Uh, it, it makes it a little harder to talk about this in a political standpoint because obviously any money, anything that's making money is going to have more influence one way or the other. Right. So it's really difficult to approach the arts on the business model. And it's just absolutely not a quantifiable form of expression or, you know, even of, you know, anything material. It takes a long time to actually develop as a musician, in which time one generally doesn't see any direct profit. You know, somebody's got to fund that. And people have to be prepared to spend that amount of time to even arrive at a point where they might be making a profit. If we looked up some of these numbers, I know like France spends billions, like $3.5 billion on the arts. Yearly. Yeah, as opposed to our, what, $146 million. That was the budget for the arts this year. And, and you can compare the sizes of the countries there too, you know. So, you know, we really are a profit-based society to a large extent, and people want to see something for their investment, and it just doesn't work that way in a direct way with the arts. It takes time. It takes, it takes I tell my students, 10 years, 10 years of dedicated practice to be able to control your voice and consider yourself ready to be a professional well, to the flip side of that, too, yeah. I mean, uh, you look at, for example, the blues. Now, some of the greatest blues musicians, I have a friend who showed me a film, and I wish I could find this film, where somebody just took a camera, and this is, sorry, I think it's in the early 60s, and wandered around Mississippi and recorded these guys who were singing the blues on their porches. And the artistic quality of that is... Just, I, I don't think I understood the blues before that. I really don't think I could even come close to understanding that. On the other hand, those guys were sharecroppers. 
and they were not making a cent on their music. So to use, again, that profit model, is a bad, it, it, it tends to skew things. You know, it, it tends to skew things towards what is easily consumed, what's uh, available, what can be exploited to some extent. Uh, and so funding for the arts, I think, through through other models is kind of evens the playing field in many ways. You might think of that. The things that aren't that aren't successful. I'm, I don't know if you know who the um, the composer Muzorsky was, very famous Russian composer. His famous opera Boris Godunov is is one of the things that's in the repertoire. This piece was only performed on a benefit in his lifetime. It was a gala concert benefit. That's the only way he could get it done. And he was a famous man at the time because he was a member of the Russian aristocracy. So the funding is necessary, and and also. I think this is when, when you should be a little more what you're getting at. The funding has to be a little bit, of, bit blind. It has to trust that the artist is going to use that money in a way to develop their own unique vision, not necessarily impose that vision on the artist. You know, not say we have these stipulations. We see you have a value. You've demonstrated a value of what where you're headed. Now we'll give you money and see where you go. Right. It's investing in exploration. And I see this impatient in in my students as well. I mean, I had it too when I was young. You want to be able to do it right now. And it just doesn't work that way, folks, unfortunately. You you made me you made me think about something, especially because we're in a pandemic. And one of the things that came to mind, especially when we talk about the exploration, and I just can see countless people, even even my own mother, you know, many of my friends who have tapped into their creative side because they're they're hoping so i'm just thinking about like wow like all of these programs that had already been in place for people who want to tap into their creative side but may not have had the proper support and i'm just thinking about how you have all these people now in this pandemic who are all at home who all need something to do who are realizing that they have creative potential and because I'll tell you, my my mother started painting vases, and I have one, love it. And I'm like, this, I'm I'm just like, where did this come from? And I'm just like that with everybody else. But it's like, wow. And so I, now it's got me thinking about like, it, it would be so awesome if there were some kind of support system just to uh, support these people that are now tapping in their into their creative side and being able to just help them with whatever they aspire to do with it. Oh, you're making a, a really good point here in that, again, we're putting the model on this of to be a successful artist means that you are making your living at it, that you are in some way, it is your entire focus. And again, this is a mistake. We're all creative. We're all creative. And we all have that potential in us. That's just, again, part of the, the nature of human beings. And when we solely focus that on people who wish to be professionals, we are excluding the majority of us. Music making isn't that way in almost any culture in the world, for example. In almost any other culture, any indigenous culture or any culture which is not directly affected by sort of the capitalist model, music making occurs from top to bottom, from little children all the way up to the professionals, and it's a spectrum. Everybody participates at some level, and creativity is that way, same, the same way. I mean, you know, uh, I am a professional composer. I get paid and I, I work in an environment where those pieces are performed for a large uh, public. But I know countless people, countless people who creative process simply makes their lives better, just makes them a better person, makes them happier, makes them more satisfied. Yeah, I think the whole Suzuki 
School, which is a, a school that she starts with really young kids and teaches them instrument of their choice. I think it was Suzuki who said, you know, music is to ennoble the soul and and the, the type of thinking that is necessary to be a musician is something you take with you in anything you do in your life, uh, really stimulates your brain in a different, a different way and also different areas of the brain. So it's about the person, even if they never touch the instrument again. Um, just having learned how to manipulate the, the strings or whatever it is, you know, if you're playing the violin and read the music and be expressive, it's activating all the parts of your brain at one time. Yeah. Well, it, another anal analogy outside of music would be storytelling. You know, storytelling, everybody's got a story they need to tell, they want to tell, something to express it that way. You know, a, a novelist, it, it does it, you know, in a way where that's his entire focus or her entire focus. A poet does that in a way which is in, in a way that captures language to do that. But each of us have that story. Each of us have our own stories. Sorry. And education, I think, is really the key. And, um, and that's where it really needs to start in either in homes or in schools. Not necessarily make everybody a classical musician because heaven knows we've got enough of those. But to give young students a language in which they can express themselves. And this is how we become uh, expressive. This is how we tap into our expressivity by having some kind of language to express it. Um, and you can't, it's really hard if you don't know how to read music, you don't know um, how to play any kind of instrument. Some people have that innately and they can pick it up, but I don't think that most of us have that. I think we do need to have that, those hard and fast skills, because once we have those, we can take it in any direction we want. And I think that's really a gift uh, to give to anyone. No, that 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 is very true. I'm, my my brain is really going right now. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about so, so much. You know, when you talk about music and storytelling, like I just think about indigenous cultures. And I mean, and this is why I'm such a big fan of Coca-Cola and their their brand strategy, because one of the things that they recognize, and I think probably one of the very few companies that recognize is that storytelling is at the heart of civilization. You know, that is how information is passed and that is how, you know, pass along, convey, whatever. You know, I, I think about even in their in their campaign strategies where they, they dump millions of dollars into, you know, doing these, uh, these entertainment marketing campaigns. But just the whole idea of, because it's the, it's the creative part, right? It's the, it's, the exciting stuff. It's not always about the dollar. Like, yes, they're trying to promote their product and their brand, but they're speaking largely to the culture as well through whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah, and imagine when that's not about selling beverage, but instead about sharing who we are. Right. Who we really are as people and finding the commonalities and finding the differences and exploring them and, and, and celebrating them. Absolutely. And the, the thread that runs through music and through all these various cultures is human expression and no matter you know what period of music you're talking about or what style of music you're talking about it's all based on that and that hasn't changed that will never change because that's what we're made of uh, it's just various ways of expressing those universal feelings that that we all have yeah it's you know it's actually true i don't know in many cultures the word for music and dance are the same and almost every culture dance music and story are bound together in the culture 
These things are our original language. The, long before we could articulate a cry of joy, we could sing one. Long before we could you know, speak to a child, we could croon a baby to sleep. Long before we could express our agony with words, we could express it with a, a lament. At, at these, this is our language. And these things all come together, language, dance, music, mm-hmm. all come together is, is the, touching the core of us. Now for our final segment, I've really been enjoying you guys so far. I'm gonna go ahead and fire. Off. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and fire off with some questions so that we can learn more about you guys, get some more of your thoughts and all the exciting things that go along with that. So I'm gonna go ahead and fire off with this first question. When most people hear classical, they think traditional stuffy only able to be done in so many ways. What are some misconceptions surrounding classical music? I think the biggest one is not understanding that that emotional thread is present in all classical music of every every era. The trick is understanding the syntax in which it is presented. Uh, that, that takes a little work and a little openness of, of mind I think if you take the time to look at it, you're going to see that that those emotions are there. I tell my students this all the time because I teach voice. And so I give my students a song, let's say a Schumann song. Uh, he was a middle romantic composer. And so they're standing there singing this and they're worried about their technique and they look stiff as a board. And so I talk to them about what's going on in the song and, you know, show them that these People were real, these emotions are real, and that they need to respond to them in in a similar way. So, I, I mean, I think sometimes we get so locked up in technique that we forget the emotional side of classical music, or, or we don't understand um, how it's being expressed. In terms of being stiff and stuffy, I think that plays into it a lot. But the other thing is that you bring your own. You bring your own emotions and your own interpretation to music when you perform it. And in that way, I think it becomes very personal. So we just need to understand how uh, these emotions are being expressed. Well, I would go a little mm-hmm. further. I would say that even that label we're giving classical, is it's, it's imposed upon us as artists. We don't have that label. We don't feel that way. I don't know a single musician who thinks that they're that their musical world is made up of a, of a set set of a, you know of a repertoire uh, that that's just what they do they don't do anything else they do it perfectly this way each time it's just not how we think we don't think in terms of borders that's we think the opposite if anything i think we're the ultimate cultural raiders in that sense because everything is drawn into what we do everything is drawn in and the borders are non-existent i i you know when you think of say the classical music you're thinking what we're really talking about is the repertoire from the 19th and 18th century that's played by uh, orchestral musicians and in concert halls well at the time that was written there was no such thing as that it, it didn't exist and the only reason we have it that way is because the only way you can market it anymore is to put it into a box and define it and believe me the musicians never feel that way it's not con- contained it's it's the ultimate uncontained experience being being a performer or a musician you are always reaching out 
you're always reaching actually in both directions you're reaching back and you're reaching forward at the same time all the time and also in all fairness to what we do because it does take a tremendous amount of training you know clara talks mm-hmm. about a decade that'd be true but for many of us it was it's you know it's more like 20 years of training to get where we do we have steeped ourselves in this tradition we are sort of permeated we're, we're pickled in it almost and so it isn't necessarily the sense of borders it's what's exuding out of us it's the other direction. It's coming out of us that way because we have completely absorbed it. We have been able to step into what is really in our culture and a tradition that stretches back to Roman times or at least to medieval medieval times, at least, you know, we're thinking the orchestral tradition, not to mention the other traditions that have joined that since then to come to what we are these days. And you, you are sort of like your sense of self is different that way. You're not projecting necessarily you or the separate genre, it's you are part of a movement forward. It's like being part of a wave. I don't know if you've ever surfed. It's like surfing. That's, that's the best. You know, it's you're, the wave takes you and you go with it. And that's how it feels. I like the way you think. <laughs> I really, I really, I like surfing. Really, you really, you really gave me something to, to digest. So, um, and I, but I do agree with you, certainly. My, my next question as arts educators, can anyone learn? some type of way to express themselves musically and why is it difficult for some people to discover how to well i think a lot of that goes back to um having a, a language to express oneself uh in some cases as i said you know some people can pick up music by ear but others aren't able to do that and so they actually need to be educated enough to be able to find a way to express themselves, you know, to understand how to read music or, or how to play the piano, uh, not, you know, doesn't have to be a concert pianist or anything, but some way to understand how, how to formulate the thoughts that are in their, in their mind. And, and I think you really picked that. up on something there, uh, because what, what, what's missing, the missing element here, again, is not where we're at, where should we should be the end of this process of finding your you know finding a way to express yourself musically this should be starting when you're a child this is how again how it happens in almost every other culture when you are able to stand you start to dance and sing you just do that's part of what you do in almost every culture in the world and everybody has a child knows that you know you you dance and sing and but we don't foster that with the development of our our, our children today we we're not fostering it in the schools i mean i I, okay, I'm a privileged white guy. I came from a, a suburban school. It had two high school jazz bands, two high school bands, an orchestra, several choirs. We put on musicals every year. How many people who live, say, in downtown Durham get that chance? It's not there for them. So they're, they're, the only thing they have left is the passive acceptance of, of you know hearing music and the church, if they can sing in choir. That's about it. Um, you know, I've noticed this. I encourage in my studio, and we do at UNCG, students to sing music outside of the the canon you know the classical canon so i tell my students you know if you want to do a musical theater piece or you have a jazz piece you're working on go and bring it into your studio you know work on it with you and you you can't believe how their eyes light up like like you let them out of prison or something because <laughs> because it's something that they relate to they've heard musical theater or whatever since they were kids and and they have a real emotional connection to that I do that because I want them to be able to f- bring that freedom into everything they do, not just, not just musical theater, but also into the into the classics. Nobody says it has to be, you know, strict and, you know, distanced. That's just 
not true. You know, you, you, this actually brings up in terms of I, I teach composition as well, and off, especially private students. And when I teach that, I look, I, li I listen to what the, the student brings to me first, their first expressive qualities. And I look for what's nascent inside there. And I, mm -hmm. I think of an example years ago, I had a student, he came in and I said, well, bring something you, you know, something new you, you want to show me that you, you know, it's artistic. So he brought in this thing where he had uh, taken what's called destructive uh, composing. He'd taken old real real tapes and scratched them a frank merriweather narrating story or narrated stories and then mixed that with a broken casio that played some notes kind of wrong it didn't really work and he brought it to me and he clearly wanted me to start yelling at him that was the whole point he wanted me to say you you know you got we got to take all your and i looked at this and said you know the problem with this piece is it isn't nearly annoying enough let's make this so i'm just ready to break throttle you by the end of this and i had him and we worked on that. And then from then on, when we worked together, he'd give me a nascent idea. And I'd say, now, okay, here's the model where you're kind of headed. This this will this this will resonate with you. If you use that, listen to it, uh, develop it, you that will that will foster where you as an individual are headed. And I'm not only speaking about creativity in terms of, of creating writing, but this applies across the board. The same thing with a good singer, I'm sure it's the same. Certainly Absolutely. as a pianist, it's the same. You have to find. You have to look at the technique that's there and mm -hmm. develop and build upon that, not by contradicting it, but by finding what works and making it work better. Yeah, you always. It's important to, I think, meet the student where they are, and begin from there rather than superimposing your idea of uh, music on them. But I always come back to the same point that this this should be we should be at the tail end of this. You know, this should be happening to kids, to children, in a, in a way that. Their lives are full of this creativity, full of exploring, full of expression, and full of opportunities. And we, we, we kind of cut ourselves out of the, the knees this way. Cool. Thanks for sharing. So we discussed the difference between European and American musicians in terms of versatility. How does that make American musicians unique? <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> you know, you probably know, we lived in Europe for many, many years, and so we have a kind of a different perspective that way. Certainly, we can talk about professional music making. Well, we can just start out by saying that uh, American culture is eclectic. We—that's who we are. We're bunch of immigrants from all over the world. Um, the melting pot is there, fond of saying. Uh, so we are, by definition. A collection of, of different cultures and, and things. Not as true in some parts of Europe. I mean, certainly every European country has has its, you know, immigrant communities, but... The, They're really held separate in many ways. Often, often they are. And so that flexibility, that openness, in a lot of ways is not built into their culture. Not to say that it doesn't happen. Uh, or that musicians are not, um, you know, willing to cross over. But it's not quite as, as easy, I think. It's not as natural for them uh, in some cases. Yeah, so, I mean, I, and, and, you know, we never we should never talk about absolutes in music because the minute you say something, someone's going to come up with 25 exceptions. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but your point is right. I mean, I think it's just about every pianist I know personally, especially pianist composers like myself, have one have had one foot in jazz. I worked as a, a fusion jazz musician for many years as a keyboardist and say, simultaneously with classical music. Now, you don't find many 
classical musicians in Europe who would have a half a foot into something else. It just isn't quite the thing. I remember I had a premiere of a piece over there uh, at a concert, and it was uh, right before me came this very, very serious German composer, and it was always, you know, very serious, very intense. Then came my piece, and the stu- the, uh, the audience was so excited, they got up and danced to classical music. They thought it was so fun. And, I, and to me, that's just great because it showed the flexibility of the music itself. But that, you know, that that's a big difference. We Americans are just sort of a grab by. We're curious. We're curio lives. You know, we've picked up things, we put them together. And so we retain <laughs> that sort of flexibility. And, and but, you know, the flip side of that, though, again, is that we have in our training at the adult level, a level of intensity that makes us masters and many and many things, many more things than others uh, than in other cultures. We are absolute technical masters. Well, we do appear flippant a lot of times to certain European cultures who are more serious-minded about the arts. But I don't think we. Are. I think what Lance said is is right that when we fix on something that we want to be good at, then we really are good at it. We find a way to be experts at it. Yeah, yeah but. We're trying to have fun all the time too, which makes us look like yeah, oh, that, <laughs> that that is I think the biggest difference is we're just I don't know. We we just seem to be enjoying it more, frankly. You know. <laughs> uh, you know, we may not uh, you know, I'm not saying that, that a lot of times Europeans don't enjoy it, but it just doesn't doesn't sort of doesn't have that sort of I well, guess flippant air. They're national personalities too. Yeah, you know. True. We're talking more on a, a broad scale here, not not on the individual level. But I do think that cultures have personalities as well. I will say, though, an American musician is always treasured in Europe for their expertise, regardless of genre. That's good to know. Really quick, my last question to you guys. uh, What structurally are the differences between classical compositions? I don't even want to use that word anymore. I I thank you for that, too, Lance. But uh, what are the differences between classical compositions, film score compositions, and modern music compositions structurally? Well, I would say uh, narrative. I would say it's it's the way that narrative runs through these three types of music. So there's always been, since music was conceived, a narrative running through music, either a story or some kind of harmonic narrative. So that harmony, you know, what I mean by that is that harmonies have implications and it takes you to an, another harmony or set of harmonies or a modulation and that's all pretty pretty much laid out in the in the classical canon starting from from you know the baroque era so the um 1600s to i won't say that to about the turn of the 20th century when that narrative was disrupted by the modernist trend and then just making sense yeah well it's Um, it's getting really wonky i will say that (laughs) but uh, let me tell you look May, may I take a different take on this? You, know, you, you were saying, what's the difference, say, between film music, classical music, and the modern? Bruce, the uh, musicologist Bruce Nettle has a very good uh, way of thinking about this. He talks about music having it at the core of music, you must understand it's affective function. It's affective function, which means what is the music attempting to do? What consciousness is it raising? What altering of behavior is occurring behind this? And when you see then the classical canon, there's a certain set of expectations from that, that when the music is performed and in the performing the music, certain things happen. Now, that's going to be very different from music from a living composer. Very different. Or let's take an easier example from film music. Now, film music, 
the affective function of that is to support the both the narrative and the visual narrative. Therefore, it is always subservient to that function. It right. is functioning to that that purpose. And if it is not, then it's interfering with the film. If it's too much. In fact, one of the interesting things you might want to go back, go go watch some of the films from the 70s, those gritty ones like The French Connection and so forth, or my favorite, Bullet, and listen to how little music there is and how that changes the nature of the narrative because now the music is only used... It's used in a very different function. It's no longer in the foreground. Let's say this with Star Wars, which it is where it's taking on a majority of the narrative at times. You know, while you're watching spaceships fly around, you're really listening to a musical score. <laughs> I think with a classical composition, the musical materials spin out in an organic and natural way to their natural conclusion, yep. depending on the composer's um, aesthetic. Um, that can't happen in film music, I don't think, in the same way, because it, it is there are strictures of how long the scene is. Um, so you've got to get to that climactic moment. If your chase scene is, you know, 45 seconds, you got to do it fast. you got to get there. It um, doesn't mean it's not really incredible right. music. No, no. Sometimes it's, it's amazing. It's a different process. So your point of departure, I think, is, is very different. Nor is it necessarily wrong for music to be subservient to something else. I mean, the music to serve a purpose rather than be the focus of the purpose. In, in art music, when you're sitting in a concert hall and you're staring at the, at, the, at the stage, obviously the purpose there is to totally absorb you. You are to be completely all uh, in, into the cultural experience. Whereas going to, say, a club and you're listening to the band, I mean, how much are you really paying attention? It's one, reason, it's one of the reasons that songs last three minutes long is because that's about how long you can dance without necessarily having to take a break. Uh, uh, you know, and the music's there. It's important. It's, it's, it's a cohesion for a social experience. So it has a different meaning then. So, uh, and I touched on modern music and the end of, of narrative. Um, good thing you didn't say anything wonky. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so what, ha what happens around the turn of the century, I'll just, make, I'll just make it brief, is that the narrative is disrupted. So music no longer has to follow any strictures, really. It becomes about itself. So it becomes kind of art for art's sake. And it doesn't really have to have a particular shape. It doesn't have to have a, a harmonic framework. It, it It's just a, sometimes it's just a soundscape or a very short kind of composition that doesn't develop, doesn't really go anywhere. So music becomes self-reflective at that point. As does visual art, too. It's the same thing. Yeah, and oh theater. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, visual arts are always ahead of yeah, music sure. uh, in terms of developing new approaches. It's, uh, I think, it's your, your point of departure. Um, <laughs> how you use narrative, or not at all. Right. <laughs> well, I, I thank you guys for that. Thank you guys. I, I really enjoyed having you guys on the show. I knew we were going to have an awesome conversation. So, you know, thank you for, again, for taking time out of your schedule to come on the same show. Thanks, Cliff. It's been great. Life. Great for yeah, us. yeah, yeah. And really quick, if you could let the listeners know where they can find uh, information about a la carte. I want them to be able to stay on top of, of that and what you guys have going on as well. Okay, well, um, the best place would be our website, www.alcgreensboro.com, www.alcgreensboro.com. That lists our concert schedule. It shows, it shows, it's got lots of media on it for you to see what former concerts are like. That would be the best. We do have a Twitter account, and uh, that's ALC Greensboro as well. At yeah, a, Instagram. And Instagram. Yeah, an Instagram account is, as Facebook. well. Facebook. Mm -hmm. And we're on Facebook as well, FB. Uh, we just, you just... If you just would uh, search engine ALC Greensboro, you'll find us right away. Okay, good, good. So 
yeah. listeners, you heard it. We have a rewind button for a reason, so write it down. <laughs> check them out. They make really great music, too. I've listened to it, so you won't be disappointed, especially if you are like me and you appreciate all music. So, <laughs> uh, But, yes, uh, thank you. Thank you guys again. Uh, oh, it's delightful. Been a lot been of fun. Appreciate it. <laughs> you guys continue to like, share, and subscribe to the same show. And, you know, thank you guys, listeners, for continuing to listening and uh, support the show. Again, you are listening to the same show, the show about nothing and everything. And until next time, we're out. <laughs>